Hello, and welcome to Dissecting Philosophy with Dr. MacDonald. In this episode, we'll be having a read-through of the first half of Aristotle's book one of his book, The Metaphysics. So, this will be a nice little short series for this week and next week, covering Aristotle just briefly getting into it a little bit and then following this couple of weeks we'll be getting stuck into our next discussion all starting about Karl Marx. So for this week's discussion on Aristotle then we're going to have a nice little brief discussion of his historical context to kick us off then a look at the question what is metaphysics then rounding off with Aristotle's problems with pre-Socratic philosophy. So a good sort of starter for this episode as well is to go back and have a listen to, if you would like to do so, the two special episodes, one on Heraclitus and the other on Parmendes. And if you listen to both those episodes, where you have Heraclitus's view to deal with fire, and everything in the world's in a state of flux and continual change, whilst as you have the opposite of that, where Parmendes is trying to search for a form of stability, and where everything's got to be absolutely stable and the same. In contrast, both of those views are then going to be tackled as well in a critical way by Aristotle in this episode. So, that's completely up to yourselves as well if you'd like to go back and have a listen to the Heraclitus or Paramendes episodes as well. So, let's get stuck into this week's episode all on Aristotle and getting started into the historical context. So, one of the big things about Aristotle, of course, is that he is the student of Plato. And so, therefore, one of the big things coming out of it is, what do we know from it all, is that from Aristotle's point of view, you have sort of the student turning his back on the master, is a nice way of putting it, and Aristotle developing out a completely different approach from what Plato's own philosophy developed into. So, for a historical context, that sort of forms overall the background in a very general way, of course, because next week we'll get more into Aristotle and Plato and Aristotle's problems with Plato. And then, really touching upon those points, there's still a lot of comparable points between Aristotle to Plato's own philosophy, and it's not a complete turn in the back on Plato's view altogether. So, with Plato as well, we had the creation of his own school, and that is exactly what Aristotle decided to do as well. So he created his own school called the Lyceum in Athens in 335 BC, dedicated to learning. And this ultimately follows what Aristotle says in his book, The Nicomachean Ethics, that an intellectual life is the happiest life that we have possible. And this is really one of the big things in which the school did was research across various vast quantities of areas of subjects. So 
basically more or less if it was something to be written on it was written on basically as an idea so innumerable subjects of interest mathematics music theology and history of philosophy just as all different little things to touch upon and then manuscripts from the Lyceum were collected and assembled for one of the first great libraries of antiquity so that nicely forms just a nice quick brief sort of overall context to it as well and another point to aristotle of course we could just fill in his overall details from 384 to 322 bc also was a tutor to alexander the great and wrote on an absolute immense number of topics such as logic poetry ethics physics and rhetoric so more or less like the Lyceum, if there was something to be written on, it got written on basically by Aristotle as well. And it's estimated that he wrote around 200 treatises, only of which 31 remain today. So it's really quite sad that due to the whole decaying and so forth over time of things and things just lost over time, that initially having such a large quantity of work done of 200 with only really 31 remaining today so from all that nice background and context then we get into the nick gritty for this week and dealing with our question what is metaphysics so getting stuck into book one of the big book the metaphysics for aristotle and the title really means after the physics so it's a great way in which really aristotle says to himself okay i've written this fantastic book called physics and it's going to tell you all about the physical world and give you a nice scientific understanding of how things work but then i need a sequel what is that sequel going to be metaphysics something after the physics and so it's intended to be read after the physics and the physical side of things why why is it intended to be read after this is because aristotle admits metaphysics is a hard concept for us to understand since it deals with abstract ideas and got a nice quote here these things the most universal are on the whole the hardest for men to know because they're furthest from the senses we should begin with what we can understand from an immediate experience of the world and once we've gained knowledge of the physical world can we then proceed to understand metaphysics so i think this is a great way for us to get stuck into this as overall topic because anybody who's ever come into philosophy at all suddenly it starts to deal with metaphysics and immediately everybody just starts to hit up against the brick wall quite hard why because we could all sympathize so much with what exactly aristotle wants to say and of course the most easiest basic examples of what metaphysical things are is of course the soul is a metaphysical entity in which we can't see it and therefore a good question is to say well if it doesn't exist how does it exist nice empirical style of criticism from scottish philosopher david hume same thing for god if 
God is a metaphysical entity that we can't see, furthest from the senses, how does God exist? So a couple of good theological style of questions as well as style of criticisms for that as well. So once we've started off with this whole basic understanding of the physical world, once we've gained a nice scientific understanding of it, then we should go and read all about the metaphysics and the metaphysical side. Then comes in a really good question to this and should immediately hit everybody. Well, why? Why is it necessary that we have metaphysics? Surely just a scientific understanding of the world would be fantastic. That's all what we need. Why do we need this second book? Just stick with the first book called Physics. That's all what we need, right? And Aristotle says no. And so let's see exactly why not. And what's the problems with our experiential knowledge and things that come from the senses. And so as he says here, we do not think that any of the senses is wisdom. Even those that are the most important forms of cognition at the level of particulars, they do not give the reason for anything, e.g. as why fire is hot, but they merely indicate that it is hot. So here we see that in relation to wisdom itself, part of what is philosophy as a word is not only just to have knowledge, but also have a form of wisdom in that knowledge as well. Who do we treat as people that is wise? Not people that simply understand things through the senses. It comes into a nice sort of criticism that Descartes also makes, another fantastic philosopher. Why wouldn't you say the senses is wise? Because your senses can deceive you. And a great example that Descartes gives is that the sun from our senses appear as big as a two-piece coin, in he as we would say here in the UK, or just relatively the size of a roughly good-sized little coin. But is it actually that size? No. Why? What is the actual size of it? It's astrological size, which is, of course, ginormous. Such a good word, ginormous. So then, our senses are deceptive. We wouldn't say that our senses give us wisdom. And for the Aristotle side of things, we could build on it more here. Going to that example that he gives, they do not give the reason for anything as why fire is hot, but merely indicate that it is hot. So here from Aristotle, we're seeing exactly what is meaning by knowledge from the senses. It indicates the what of things, that when you touch hot water, what's it going to say? That it is hot. When it's cold water, what's it going to say? That it is cold. But, he says, when you come to understand, well, why is it hot? Why is it cold? Then we immediately hit into a bit of a problem because he's going to argue that from our direct immediate senses experience it's not going to understand that whatsoever because we only understand the what that it is hot or cold so if we need to move to the why then what's going to explain the why is the metaphysics and the metaphysical side of things and so this exactly gets into his whole 
second book. This is why you need to read the second book and buy it, because metaphysics enables us to correctly understand why things occur in our experience. Now the posh word for this comes in, and in order to do this we must discover the first principle, which it sounds really complex, but it's as with most things in philosophy, it's not. Because what exactly is a first principle? It can be compared to our modern understanding of causality. So a first principle is ultimately an absolute cause in which each subsequent thing can be explained by it. So this enables a universal methodology by which can be applied to various different things. For instance, we can say that a GP, so your general practitioner, your local doctor, learns a universal method in order to identify different medical problems within the body, identify the specific causes of it, and then once you identify the cause, you understand all the effects and then also how to treat it at the same time and give out the specific medicine that's required to it. Simple enough when we understand it like that for what is the first causes of things. So following on from this then, we can have another example for a car mechanic for instance, that a car mechanic learns all the various different causes for why things happen in a car, and then you learn all the different effects from how all the causes work, and then you're able to go and fix all the various different problems within the car when it messes up. So understanding things from this basis of a first principle then allows Aristotle to criticize previous different understandings of how things exactly are in the world and the why exactly. So he's going to attack the pre-Socratics from this point of saying they're not explaining the why properly enough to go back to the first principles. So as we see here, going back into the first one, for the pre-Socratics as a whole, pre-Socratics then just touching upon it very briefly, is that bunch of very early thinkers in which everything revolves around a set of natural elements as a set of causes. And so you have ones like Thales and Alex Mander and Alex Mandes and various different people all running around arguing various different elemental principles as the fundamental principle for why things are in the world. So let's say one argues for water, the next argues for a combination of hot and cold, and you even have Democritus in there arguing for atoms, and atomic theory is the principle of things. So, from that basis of arguing for various different principles, Aristotle comes in and then says this, after these thinkers and principles like these, as they were not sufficient to generate the any of things, once again by the truth itself, they were obliged to seek out the next principle, for of the fact that some entities have, and some entities are the good and noble, perhaps neither fire nor earth nor any of these such things is either likely to be the cause, nor did they think it was, nor indeed would it be good to hand so great a responsibility over to chance and the automatic. 
And so really we can ask this question from this, what are the problems with the pre-Socratic view of the world that explains the world through elemental causes such as fire, air and water? And from that we come into the easily enough sort of explanation that he gives. When you try to have one thing, then that leads to another because you then keep on finding out maybe, well, water seems to be really key principle for growing things in the world. But then what about fire? Fire is also such a key thing, but we also need to breathe. And maybe it seems like plants also need to breathe as well at the same time as that. And animals need to breathe, but then animals also need water. And you can see how just that whole mindset, as he said, one thing leads to another, leads to another. And you're continually in that whole set of finding another cause, finding another cause, and never really getting into the why are these things occurring, going back into those whole points about hot and cold. It's only explaining what things are happening in the world and not why they're happening in the world. So let's move on from this into say, well, what would elemental causes fail to explain in an artwork like such as a statue of David for Michelangelo's David. What would that fail to explain? The pre-Socratics would simply just explain the elemental causes of it, of such as the statue itself being made of marble and perhaps marvel at the miraculous way in which Michelangelo was able to carve out David from the marble. But then you wouldn't go and say marble is the fundamental cause upon which everything in the entire world depends upon. But necessarily one person might from that. But what does it fundamentally miss when you deal with such a thing as art? If you simply go, that's a nice bit of marble looking there. You wouldn't do that whatsoever because what you should say when looking at Michelangelo's David, it's a beautiful piece of art that's there. It's not simply just its components. Just like any piece of artwork, you don't just look at Van Gogh's sunflowers, for instance, and just go, that's a nice bit of color right there. You just, <laughs> you go to yourself, that's a really beautiful painting of some sunflowers. It's the same sort of points that Aristotle wants to make there. You don't just, we don't have this immediate relationship just with the simple things as they are. It always goes into that why, well, why? And in the given out case for artwork, it would be beauty. In the case of the emergency services, you could say, well, what do they do? And they go, well, it's fantastic cars. They're all made of metal. Not say, well, that's fantastic, but tell me, what do they do? They all perform their duty. There's a sense of justice in what they do. There's a whole set of ethical principles in what they do. But once you just boil it down to, well, these are all fantastic metal cars, or this is all fantastic physical components of the human body, you're sort of missing out that whole fundamental elements and the deeper points about duty and ethics and so forth that go in with the emergency services. So those are a couple of nice fun examples there. So then we can go into Aristotle's problem with Parmendes, our fantastic thinker who tries to have that basis into a form of stability and then mathematics performs 
an incredible role for Parmenides' philosophy. Why, why do we go so much into mathematics? Because 2 plus 2 always equals 4, regardless of what time period you're in, regardless of what society, regardless of what culture you're in, 2 plus 2 always equals 4. Fantastic. And so therefore, we actually have a point in which you can say this, you can build truths and so forth all off these mathematical principles. And you can see why also some philosophers are also great mathematicians at the same time, and then their philosophies are equally trying to find those points that stable in the world. But you have with Aristotle problems with Parmenides and mathematics. And this is the point in which everybody suddenly goes, oh, just if only I had Aristotle at school, it would have made math much more fun because I could always at one point just been the smart guy and just said, oh, teacher, do you know that in fact, I <laughs> here are all the problems with us studying mathematics right now, just when you're having that really bad day of doing math at school. But anywho, let's go into discuss Aristotle's view on the problems with mathematics in Parmenides' view. Mathematical principles do not at all say or how it will be possible for there to be generation and destruction or change in the modification of the works of the bodies that move around the heaven. And even if one granted that they could make magnitude from these things, or even showed this yet, in what way will there be heavy and light among the ideas? For on the basis of their premises, they're talking no more about the mathematical bodies than about sensible ones. And so, about fire or earth or other such bodies, they have not spoken at all since I think they have nothing to say in connection with sensible bodies. And so part of the whole thing with Aristotle's view, we can see immediately what he wants to say. Mathematical principles do not at all say or how it will be possible for there to be generation, destruction or change and modification of the works of the bodies that move around the heavens. So that's just another way of saying how weather would work, for instance, move around bodies around the heaven, how clouds work and the weather works. You wouldn't go to a mathematician to say, can you please tell me what the weather will be like today? They'll just look at you rather dumbfoundedly and go, excuse me, what? Because you would listen to your meteorologist instead. Somebody who does precisely study all the bodies of the heavens, as Aristotle might say. And so it goes into those points that what does mathematics fail to explain is all the various different types of change, destruction, and life cycles is another way of putting it. Because if we simply go into it to say, well, how is lightning formed? Why would a mathematical explanation be insufficient to explain how lightning's formed? Because I've got my lovely little chart in front of me. We have positive charges. We have negative charges above that. And then we have hot air. And then we have cold air pushing down. And as it says, positive charges collect near the top of the rain cloud. And then therefore the hot and cold air push together and so forth. And then 
you get all these various different positive and negative charges come together and that makes lightning fantastic that's what exactly then mathematics doesn't explain is all these various different points of transformation and change in the world it's why so much great counterpoint to the Parmendes is the Heraclitus because the Heraclitus takes into consideration all those points about transformation and change as being a necessary thing then also you say well why would a mathematical explanation be insufficient to explain the emperor penguins migration because all what you would have with the mathematics is just how you would start off with two penguins and then you would end up with a baby penguin but then you wouldn't have the whole you wouldn't have the whole migration you wouldn't have all the biology at work within that you wouldn't have the whole life cycle process either explained and at this point we need a good sort of narrative voice over the top of this all narrating about baby penguins and penguins migration but as we can see again what does it fail to explain is all those points about transformation change destruction all those given points that's where mathematics hits up against a limit of what it can do so what can we say overall round and off then is that for Aristotle our empirical knowledge is limited since it's based solely upon our sensory experience of the world in order to know the causes for why things happen in the world we must discover its first principle this is not based upon a multiplicity of causes that can be attributed to specific things in the world like fire water and air but the same universal cause this is also not based upon any specific methodology such as mathematical or scientific but must be applied universally across different methods and so that's what's quite interesting isn't it how you have aristotle itself work in such a way that whenever you have the first principle being established it's to work in such a way that it's applied multidisciplinary across many different subjects and not just one subject sticking within the boundaries of just that one so then in next week's episode then we'll be getting stuck into all the discussion about aristotle and plato and their comparable points and exactly where the similarities and differences between aristotle and plato for next week's episode feel free to drop me an email at my address dissectingphilosophy at gmail.com visit the website at www.dissectingphilosophy.com to check out the blog tip me a coffee at coffee.com forward slash dissecting philosophy ko-fi.com forward slash dissecting philosophy on the patreon page is the ongoing discussion of slavoj zizek's pandemic 2 chronicles of a lost time going on at the minute as well as 10 episodes all on pandemic 1 and these require a five pound subscription in the second tier to listen to except from the first episodes and they're completely free and available to listen to now and lastly i can be found on twitter at i am a rubber man many thanks for listening and i hope you'll join me next time <laughs>